0: Exciting to be starting a new study, although um, I'm sure many of you are still reveling in the glory of the new heavens and the new earth, uh, revelation, Um, but we get the privilege this evening to kick off our Wednesday night series, as Carrie said, in Psalm 119, so I invite you to take your Bibles and and wear a good path there, um, because we'll be going, going there at least for 21 other Wednesday evenings. So, Psalm 119, a colossal psalm, if you're familiar at all with it, that towers above the rest of our psalter really in size and stature. Maybe you've heard of it, maybe you were intimidated by it. A psalm that the great C.H. Spurgeon deemed a mass of Bibline and a star in the firmament of the psalms of the first and greatest magnitude. You know, if you've ever flipped through the psalms, you might have wondered at times, man, when is this thing going to end? A unique psalm, no doubt, and, and one which has earned it a host of different responses. As I mentioned, maybe some of you were intimidated at its length well, you join good company because, in fact, St. Augustine, it is said, that church father put off commentating, uh, co- commenting on Psalm 119 until he had finished the whole Psalter because, quote, he said, as often as I essay to think thereon, it always exceeded the powers of my intent thought and the utmost grasp of my faculties. St. Augustine said of this psalm, and yet this psalm, which caused such a notable church father to, in one sense, delay his study of this psalm, caused yet another father in church history to encourage his children to study it early and often. Philip Henry, the father of the great Puritan commentator Matthew Henry, perhaps you've heard of him, maybe you own his commentaries, urged his children to memorize and meditate one verse of this psalm every morning, which he said would bring them to be in love with all the rest of the Scriptures. So this is the psalm we begin to study tonight, a psalm that intimidates the wise and learned, and yet is grasped and encouraged of the children to read. So plain, as Bishop Cowper once said, that children may understand it so rich and instructive that the wisest, most experienced may every day learn something from it. I'm personally excited to study this psalm because it was the favorite psalm of one of my uh, mentors at the Expositor Seminary, Dr. George Zemek, who's now with the Lord, and I trust that as we open it and begin to mine out its riches, it will, Lord willing, quickly become dear to us as well. So, before we dive in, really into the first stanza, which we'll try to cover tonight, the first eight verses because this is the first installment in our series. Let me make some introductory comments about the psalm as a whole, about the background and its composition, and then we'll get into the the actual text. But Psalm 119 is indeed the, the longest psalm in the Psalter, containing a total of, you can count them, 176 verses, all of which are arranged this is what's fascinating, in alphabetical order into what we've called an acrostic poem in the original Hebrew text. You can't see it here in the English, of course, but maybe your English text there has the letter of the alphabet at the beginning of each eight verses that each eight verses begins with. And so, it's composed of 22 stanzas. Of eight verses each, and in each of those eight verses, the first word begins with that letter of the alphabet. For example, the first eight verses, which we'll be looking at tonight, begin with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph. Well, the next eight verses begin with the second letter, Beit, and eight verses after that begin with the third letter, Gimel, so on and so forth, through all 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Hence, the 22 stanzas of this psalm. It's it's, it's an incredible composition, a work of art, really. Why would would the author write in such a way? Well, two reasons that many have suggested I think are good reasons. Uh, First, to help to help children to memorize its contents. No doubt that was helpful, right? That it would follow the Hebrew alphabet. So, almost a, as they learned the alphabet, they could learn this psalm. But secondly, it's been said and observed that it, th- this kind of writing and this kind of poetry, in a sense, is the most thorough way for someone to cover a particular topic, right? from. We use the idiom from A to Z, right? And so that that is what this psalm does. That is what this writer does as the writer exhausted the letters of the alphabet so he also exhausted his subject. And so what is the subject of Psalm 119? Perhaps you know. Simply put, the theme, if you've ever read through it, is the Word of God in the Child of God, to borrow uh, the title of my mentor's book on this very psalm. It is, the theme is the Word of God, the Word of God as it relates to the people of God. In, in fact, uh, as you read through the psalm, you'll find a number of different words that all stand Uh, for, and describe the Word of God. Eight different terms that describe different facets of the Word of God. I'll give them to you if you're taking notes. Um, They're translated law, testimonies, precepts, statutes, commandments, ordinances, word, and promise. And we'll encounter even some of those in our passage uh, tonight. You know, it's as if the psalmist sees the revelation of God as an eight sided diamond, right? With and with with each of the different synonyms here, it's as if though he's turning that diamond and admiring it from eight different angles those one commentator writes then here we have set forth in inexhaustible fullness the word of god what the word of god is to a man and how man is to behave himself in relation to it you know the in fact the heading for this psalm in the german bible reads the, the christian's golden abc of the praise love power and use of the word of god that's what this psalm is about Who wrote this? Who's the author of Psalm 119? We don't know. Just like the the book of Hebrews, it's a mystery to us. The psalm doesn't say um, we're only given hints into the occasion of his writing. The psalm is anonymous. It lacks a prescript. And so... Theories abound, of course. Potential authors include David. Of course, you think of Psalms, you think of David. Spurgeon actually believed it was David. But others have proposed that this is Hezekiah writing, or Jeremiah, Nehemiah, Malachi, even. A Jewish tradition has suggested that this was Ezra the scribe, and even Daniel. However, we do know, even though we don't know who wrote this particularly, we do know from the psalm itself that whoever wrote it seems to have pended in a season of trouble and affliction, as one writer would observe, finding himself in persecution from powerful people who ridiculed his faith in an effort to shame him into abandoning it. And so, in that sense, I tend, I tend to lean towards Daniel… You think of his circumstances. But all of that to say, though, the psalm, as we read through it, is highly structured and symmetrical in form because of this situation, because the psalmist is writing in distress, the language and style of it is actually full of emotion and passion. Uh, In other words, this, this is not just a textbook on the doctrine of Scripture. It is actually a journal entry of a man in dire circumstances with Bible open before him in prayer to his God. That is how we encounter this psalm and its setting. And so, as we come to read it, The late David Pallison reminds us that Psalm 119 is torrential, not topical, it's relentless, not repetitive, it's personal, not propositional primarily. He says, we hear someone speaking to God, the God who speaks, someone who needs the God who speaks, and someone who loves the God who speaks. That is Psalm 119. So with that background in place, let's examine at least three the first stanza together this evening, and follow along with me as I read the opening eight verses here, the olive stanza. How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. How blessed are those who observe His testimonies, who seek Him with all their heart. They also do not They also do know unrighteousness. They walk in His ways. You have ordained Your precepts that we should keep them diligently. Oh, that My ways may be established to keep Your statutes. Then I shall not be ashamed when I look upon all Your commandments. I shall give thanks to You with uprightness of heart when I learn Your righteous judgments I shall keep your statutes, do not forsake me utterly. Now, with each, each stanza of this psalm, uh, we're, we're going we're to likely see unique themes highlighted about the Word of God in each of these stanzas, and the theme in, in this first stanza is simply this, a life of obedience to God's Word. That is the focus here in these first eight verses. It focuses in on a life of obedience to God's Word. In fact, five times in these eight verses we encounter words like way or path and walk that imply a lifestyle, along with then many verbs that speak of obedience like as you noticed, observe and seek and do and keep. And so, these verses are concerned, this is the glue that holds them together, uh, with a life that obeys the commandments, the Word of God. That is their predominant theme. And so, if you're taking notes, I want us then, as we walk through, as to consider from the psalmist words, first, the joy of This obedience in verses 1 through 3. And then we're going to examine the pursuit of this obedience in verses 4 through 8. That's how we'll look at it tonight. The joy of this obedience to God's word and the pursuit of this obedience to God's word. So notice first how the psalmist declares quite objectively to us at the very outset of this psalm about the Word of God, the joy and the blessing that comes from a life of obedience to God's Word, from a life that walks in step with God's revealed will, verses 1 through 3. In fact, notice twice in these three verses does the psalmist burst forth about the blessedness, the happy condition of those, we could say the joy of those who obey the Word of God. Indeed, those who live lives of obedience to God's Word here, twice, how blessed they are. How blessed they are. We could say doubly blessed. There is a second blessing, you could say, not in the way some people use it. But it's here, twice blessed in obedience to God's Word. This is great joy, the great joy that belongs to those who follow Yahweh. As one commentator put it, by sin, misery entered into the world. Holiness alone, therefore, can lead us to happiness. That's right. What, what we find reinforced here is that a life of obedience is indeed not a slavish, dreary existence. It is indeed a life of joy. Both verses 1 and 2, notice here, begin with this very familiar term to the Old Testament, "Ashrei," which occurs 44 times in the Old Testament every one of which is used to describe the the genuine believer and the child of God, For just to give you a, couple, a few examples. The most famous of all is Psalm 1, of course, in verses 1 and 2, which really in one sense parallel this or teach the same thing that this particular psalm teaches how blessed but first, negatively, is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his, whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Blessing is, comes the same way in that particular psalm. So, David agrees. But notice, you can write down also just a couple other examples of the blessed life And how this word is specifically applied, listen, to those who are believers, those who have been saved. This is a description of who these people are. It isn't what these people earn. Psalm 2, verse 12, how blessed are all who take refuge in Him. That is God. Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. How blessed, same word, is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed again is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And so we see this this word is a description. It is a description of a kind of person who has a genuine relationship with their God, whose sins are forgiven. And who then, therefore, is transformed to walk in the law of the Lord. The same is true here. The word refers to that happy condition then, which is not, of course, it's not the superficial, giddy happiness that we think of, but true and deep-seated joy is what's referred to here. It's the language of The Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, perhaps you're familiar with that, It describes someone to be envied, someone who is in the most favorable position, who possesses what we would call the good life, the good life. So, so I have to ask you, is, is this how you would describe the good life? As a, a life which walks in the law of Yahweh. A life of obedience. This is how the psalmist opens. This is how the psalmist describes the blessed condition. And it's interesting here, actually, this word is in the plural form, so it should read, oh, the, this doesn't make for good translations, but it should read this, oh, the blessednesses. The happinesses, the many, all manner of blessednesses belong to this person. The full range of them are wrapped up in this one state. We could say that this is true. This is the height of bliss. This is fullness of joy. That is what is meant here. And so we need to ask to who, to whom. Is the psalmist referring to to whom does this blessed condition belong? What characterizes this person? Notice verses 1 and 2 give us our answer and how it describes this person. He's characterized by living and loving God's Word, just to summarize for you. Notice first, verse 1, this joy belongs to those who are characteristically living out God's Word as the steady pattern of their life. How blessed are those whose ways or path or road is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Matthew Henry writes, the psalmist here shows that godly people are happy people. The language here is of spiritual maturity and integrity. That is the idea behind the word here, blameless. Um, One writer suggests uh, for this term, those whose way of life is irreproachable, this is what characterizes the blessed person. This is what describes him. This is who he is. Uh, The the Hebrew picture of this word blameless is uh, used of Old Testament sacrifices that were required, as you know, to, to be blameless and without blemish, right? Animals that were to be without defect or sickness or missing limbs, we weren't to bring, they weren't to bring those types of animals to sacrifice to their God. They were to bring a whole, sound, and healthy, and, mat- and mature animal. And so, th- this is a life that is not morally defective or broken, we could say. Th- this is the language of spiritual maturity and integrity. This is the man whose life and walk is spiritually sound and whole, not missing in any area, not hobbling along. This is a mature believer. That is who is blessed here. That's who experiences joy. And not only that, notice the second half of this verse adds that this path of happy holiness and maturity is trodden in the law of the Lord. Notice, in the law of the Lord who walks... In the law of the Lord, uh, Matthew Henry adds, not in the, the way of the world or of our own hearts, as many today might imagine, is the path to happiness and joy, but rather happiness, the path, belongs to those who walk in the law of Yahweh. That is the path. That is the way. And here we encounter our first synonym for the word of god the word of god is here described first in this psalm as god's law as god's law now what do you think of when i say law you know for so many people it is there's a negative connotation to it and yet not so here not for this psalmist the torah by the way speaks of god's instruction generally. It was, it, was, it was often used specifically to speak of the Ten Commandments and then even brought into the first five books of the Bible, but also then in many places just generically for God's instruction and direction for His people, and I believe that's the way it's being used here. It, it is God's Word as our rule for life, and so the psalmist is saying, happy is the one who abides by these rules. Happy is the one who steps wherever the lamp of God's law shines. Joy belongs to the one who, whose whole course of life has been charted by God's instructions. That is the sense here. Spurgeon therefore writes, rough may be the way, stern the rule, and hard the discipline, all these we know and more, but a thousand heaped-up blessednesses are still found in godly living for which we bless the Lord. Do you believe that this evening? That the most blessed, joyful path is that path of obedience to God's law? You see, the, the psalmist does not exclaim here, How easy, nor how comfortable, but how blessed. How blessed, how rewarding is such a mature and consistent life of obedience and conformity to God's law. That is the path to true happiness. It is holiness, it is maturity, it is integrity. It reminds me of the old children's song, right? trust and obey for what there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey what simple truth but notice second then in verse 2 that this joy of obedience a life of obedience belongs to those not just those who live God's word, but also the psalmist takes it one step further to those who love God's word. To those actually who love God and His word. Notice how blessed, once again, are those who observe His testimonies, who seek Him with all their heart. Here, this verse adds then An inward dimension to verse 1. The psalmist begins to push it a little bit further. In other words, the focus here is on the heart and the affections of the one who obeys the word of God. For that is where all true obedience is born. Notice the language the psalmist employs now. Joy belongs not just to those who walk, verse 1, but now to those who observe and who seek. Now, now to clarify, the words here, the verbs being used now describing this person, the, the, the word for observe is actually a term that means to guard or to keep or even to watch over and to protect as with a priceless treasure. And so observe is kind of, it's, it's not really a great translation in my opinion because it, it, you know, harkens back to science class, right? The labs that you look through a microscope, I'm observing something, what am I supposed to observe, not sure. No, the word is actually to guard, to keep, to watch carefully over so as to protect We could say even treasure. This speaks then to our love for the Word of God. Since that which we love, we guard with our life. And so Spurgeon writes, We are bound to keep with all care the Word of God. We are to keep them as a watchman guards his master's house, as a steward husbands his Lord's goods, as a shepherd keeps his employer's, flock and here what it is what is it that we are to guard the psalmist says the object of this man's keeping is god's testimonies our second synonym for the word of god here god's word in other words testifies that's the nuance here and stands as a witness to us and to the world of God's ways, His will, His works, and His worth. It is a witness to those things. What joy belongs to those who treasure such testimonies. Do you treasure them? Do you guard those truths, those witnesses with your life? Do you love the Word of God and what it stands for and testifies to you of who God is, what He has done. But not only that, notice the psalmist goes on, what joy belongs to those who seek Him with all their heart. You see, the language now switches again from safeguarding now to searching, but the point remains the same here. The issue is still Love the issue is still what I value. But now we find out that the godly love the Word of God because they they love the God of the Word. Notice, He is the ultimate object of their investigation. What draws them, in other words, what draws us, listen Christian, what should draw you to search out the scriptures is God himself. That you would see him and encounter your creator, your redeemer, your savior, your God. We plumb the depths of the Bible in order to see God's face. It's not a mere clinical exercise. It is Him we encounter in His Word and He is Scripture's greatest blessing. Here we find that great truth that God's Word has been given to us to reveal Himself. But notice, How then should God be sought in His Word? Well, the psalmist clarifies here, with all heart. Not half-heartedly, but with a whole heart. My friend, you seek the Lord with whole heart. It is what you imagine it to mean. This is the language of sincerity It is the language of fervency. It is the language of a single-minded focus, a, a whole allegiance. This is an activity that involves the entire inner man. Is that how you seek the Lord? Is that how you search the Scriptures? You see, this is not describing what we often sometimes do when we wake up and think, well, I need to read my few verses in the Bible. And we struggle to get through it because we have all these other things on our mind that we have to do throughout the day. No, the psalmist says, that is not seeking the Lord with all your heart. But the one who is blessed, the one who is who who. who who has this great joy is the one who searches the scriptures for his God and to this one God says and promises in Jeremiah 29:13 you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart what a promise what a guarantee therefore that joy belongs to the one who seeks and finds God in his word do you know this joy do you rejoice over the discovery of in your study? If you do, you're blessed, truly blessed. And lastly, notice here at verse 3, the practical and ethical fruit that is, is produced from a blessed life of living and loving the Word of God. They also do no unrighteousness. They walk in His ways. Uh, In the original text, the psalmist clearly traces this verse back and attaches it as an addendum to verses 1 and 2. In other words, the fruit of this verse, we could say, is fed by the root of the previous verses. Those who live and love the Word of God, verses 1 and 2, will inevitably Verse 3, do no wrong to their neighbor, that's what he means here, and carry out God's will with their life. Look, what joy and blessedness, what a happy condition. Are Are you living the blessed life? Are you in the will of God As you look at your life, are are your relationships strained all around you? Have you wronged your neighbor? Examine your life and your love. Is it for the Word of God? How is your relationship to the Scriptures? Are you obeying the Word of God? Are you treasuring it in your heart? Are you searching them diligently in love? This is what the psalmist declares to us. This is who is blessed. This is the life of joy, the joy of obedience to God's Word. But notice next then, verses 4 to the end of our passage, 4 through 8, the psalmist moves on from declaring to us who's blessed in this life of obedience to God's Word to now speak of the pursuit of that life of obedience to God's Word, his own personal pursuit for that matter. Notice verses 4 through 8. You know, having proclaimed the blessedness and joy of a life of obedience to the Word of God, the psalmist now gets much more personal and speaks of his own Chasing after that very obedience. Notice the progression even in the text before we get into it. From, from the third person in verses 1 through 3. Like how blessed is that man. To the second person in verse 4. You speaking to God. And finally to the first person I, in verses 5 through 8, it gets, it gets much more personal now in our section. It's no longer that man who's blessed, it's I want that. If the joy and blessing are found then in obedience to Scripture, the psalmist now expresses his own longing, his own desire, his own pursuit of this blessed So consider with me how he speaks now of this pursuit of obedience, a life of obedience to God's Word. Perhaps we can learn from it as well. Notice first in verse for the reason for this pursuit that he gives, the reason for this pursuit of obedience. You, he says, have ordained your precepts that we should keep them diligently. Isn't that interesting? I mean, you would would imagine that after verses 1 through 3, the reason that he gives would be something to the effect of, because they will bring me great joy. That's not where he goes. It's not what we might have concluded, perhaps, but his reason here, did you notice, is because God himself has given his word to be obeyed. That's it. That is the ultimate reason. He goes straight to the heart of the matter, to the sovereign prerogative of God Almighty to command obedience of his creatures. Is there great blessing in obedience to that, Lord? Absolutely. But even that blessing is not the primary reason for my obedience. I obey because He's worthy of my allegiance. how, How does the psalmist make that point here? The you here, notice, well, you don't see it in your translation, perhaps in the English, but the you is actually emphatic. In other words, it really should be translated, you yourself, have have literally commanded your precepts. It, it's a it's a it's a phrase loaded with divine authority. Where did this word come from? You yourself, God Himself, is the source and the origin. He is the one who commanded his precepts. Uh, later in Psalm 119, verse 102, we read, uh, he'll go on to say, I've not turned aside from your ordinances. Listen to the emphatic again, for you yourself have taught me. So, do you, Christian, do you realize when God speaks to us in his word, it's God himself speaking? Comes directly from him. That is the nature of this word. God himself gives it. It is God himself who commanded his precepts. They weren't derived from some lesser application or lesser authority. Now, the term here, precepts, is our third synonym, at least in our text, that we encounter for the word of God. And it's one that's drawn from the realm of an officer or overseer who's responsible to look closely into a situation and take action. Or as one author put it, these are God's particularized rules. They have a specific application, and they're given for a pointed purpose. And God says, I myself have commanded those. Notice what that pointed purpose is, the unmistakable purpose for which God gave His word here is told to us in the second line of this verse that it might be obeyed and obeyed diligently. So that is why God has given us His word you understand that? God has not spoken to us so that we could admire it, although we ought to. God doesn't speak to us His precepts so that we can ooh and ah or pick it apart and analyze it and appreciate the structure. While we should, no doubt, do that and can, even as this psalm in its composition, but ultimately... He tells us here the purpose, the explicit purpose for which Scripture is given is for our obedience. The word translated here uh, diligently then is, is a common Old Testament word for intensity or muchness or might. That is how His word is to be obeyed. Because it comes from Him, from God directly. We are accountable to Him. This is the reason why we obey. This is the ultimate reason for a life of obedience to the Word of God. Because it is His Word and He has commanded it. If that is too simple for you, take it up with... The psalmist, that is the reason he gives here, it's the highest motive because God has his right to command us. But notice next then, in verses 5 through 7, the psalmist's request for help in this pursuit of obedience. In other words, he's told us why we should pursue this life of obedience. Now, perhaps, we're being told, at least we get a glimpse into how. And notice verses five through seven, the psalmist says, Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. Then I shall not be ashamed when I look upon all your commandments. I shall give thanks. To you with uprightness of heart, when I learn your righteous judgments. See, here we can learn, perhaps, from the very first thing the Psalms does, to pursue obedience—the obedience that God requires. And you notice what he does. He, he, He doesn't. He doesn't begin with his own resolve or his own techniques or even his own effort. Isn't that interesting? Instead instead of seeking and pursuing this in his own strength and willpower, his first knee-jerk response to verse 4, the demand of disobedience upon his life, is to do what? To pray. It is to petition God for help. It is to request of Him His divine assistance in this task. Kristen, are you failing in the Christian life? Are you failing in this life of obedience? You have to stop and ask then, have you asked the Lord to help you? Have you paused to pray that God might grant you the strength and that He might supply what He commands this is what the the psalmist does here. Verse 5 is a desperate plea and cry for God's enabling grace to supply what He requires us to perform. Isn't that fascinating? It's so helpful, though. See, the psalmist understands his inability here and so his expression, right out of the gate, are these words that begin verse five: "Oh that," or "I wish." It's a rare sort of expression, only found one other place in the Old Testament. But it communicates this intense longing, this 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 cry of desire that it's it's almost desperate. It recognizes its own deficiency. And in that recognition, is driven to prayer by a sense of his own inadequacy, inability, and insufficiency for the task of obedience. Have you ever felt this? You see, the Word of God is indeed sweet For those of us who are in Christ, for those of us who have this saving relationship, it is no longer a burden to us in that sense, no longer does it condemn us in that sense, and yet, we would be foolish to imagine that we can accomplish it upon our own strength, right? We still read it and... And see the demands given in it and sense our own inadequacy. Humility demands that. And the psalmist understood that. He saw his helpless condition. This is really, this captures that sentiment that apart from Christ, we could do nothing, John 15, 5. So that is, this is the cry of our hearts as well. Oh, God, help us establish our ways that we might keep your word. Uh, Charles Bridges uh, writes a great volume on this psalm, and he writes here about these verses, we might as soon create a world as create in our hearts one pulse of spiritual life. And yet, our inability does not cancel our obligation. And so, we acknowledge, Lord, our obligation, but we feel our impotency, right? That is, that is all of us in the face of what God demands. And we're caught, aren't we? Because we can't just throw it off because we love it and we want to obey. At least, that is the heart of the true Christian, really this is this verse captures this this truth, which I'm sure you've heard Augustine so famously instead give in a prayer similar, Give what you command, O Lord, and then command whatever you will. That is the posture here, so knowing this, sensing his own inability, the psalmist. The psalmist's pursuit of obedience begins with prayer, a request for help. But what what precisely, notice, is the content of this request? What specifically is he asking? Uh, Notice here the desire of the psalmist is for God to establish. It's to make firm or steadfast or even direct His paths, His way in order that he might obey, right? The picture is again picking up that of walking a a path, going on a journey that's already come up in this psalm. This time, the picture is for God to make sure and secure the psalmist's path. Perhaps even the metaphor is for God to give him a firm footing, to, to direct and establish his steps Upon solid grounds, right? Place my feet where they must go. By the way, this is, if you're taking notes, the same combination of words found in the second line of Proverbs 4, verse 26, it may be familiar to us, watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. It's the same idea. But here, it's a prayer to God for him to do that. And again, the purpose of this, the purpose and goal of God establishing the psalmist's path is obedience. It's the same phrase used as back in verse 4, that we should keep That's the purpose, that's the point of this divine enabling help and grace, of this divine establishing of a sure footing. In other words, if we're going to be poetic with the picture here, the destination we could say of the road that is paved by God is obedience to His statutes. And With the word statutes here, we come to our fourth synonym for the word of God. It refers to that which God has here's the nuance etched and gray engraved or inscribed permanently in Scripture, emphasizing the binding nature of God's laws. That is what we seek to keep. Those don't change, they're not shifting. You can't erase them. God's Word is fixed in the heavens. We could, could even say, this is the play on words here, that He might establish us to obey His Word, which is engraved and fixed and unchanging and firm. So, Christian, is this the longing of your heart? Have you, have you cried out to God to establish your feet in the way of obedience? Have you sensed your inadequacy and need of his help on this road of sanctification? As Spurgeon says in his great volume on the Psalms, we should have more keepers of the statutes if we had more who sighed and cried after the grace to do so. Beloved, seek the Lord. Petition Him. Go to Him for help. And Notice notice how verses 6 and 7 unfold very quickly now then the blessed results of God's divine help and enablement. What is the fruit then born of this divine aid? First, a clear conscience. Notice verse 6. Then I shall not be ashamed when I look upon all your commandments. When I gaze into the Word, I'll have a clear conscience finally. This first blessed result and fruit of God's sanctifying grace in the believer is a clear conscience because of a circumspect life. And to be ashamed in the Old Testament was the worst kind of disgrace and dishonor a person could experience One writer says, shame is the fruit of sin, and of course, that is true, that was true in Genesis 3, right? Even to our first parents, Adam and Eve, who felt this for the first time when they ate of the forbidden fruit and immediately sought to hide themselves from each other and from God. But specifically here, notice the occasion for this potential disgrace and feeling of shame for the psalmist was not public humiliation but rather when I look upon all your commandments, or literally in my looking upon all your commandments. In other words, the psalmist is speaking here of the shame of conviction when studying God's Word. Right? The, the language of looking upon speaks not of just a cursory glance, but rather a paying close attention to. This is a Careful and sustained investigation and study. And it's ongoing here, tense, it's continued examination. By the way, the commandments here is the fifth synonym that we encounter here for the Word of God. And it refers to the decrees that are issued by God. These are divine orders. And that is, the, that is the danger, isn't it? That when we gaze upon all that God has required of us and commanded of us, there is, there is a great temptation to feel shame. And yet the psalmist says, the fruit of God's help in your sanctification, His enabling grace to help Establish your feet towards obedience can give you a clear conscience when you look upon those commandments. To know that that your sins have been forgiven. That you are walking uprightly by the power of the Spirit. And that grace is giving you the ability now to obey and to fulfill the law of God. That's a sweet fruit, isn't it? A clear conscience. Notice the second fruit here. The second fruit, along with a clear conscience, is found in verse 7, and that is the fruit of thanksgiving and praise. The fruit of thanksgiving and praise. The psalmist goes on, then... We could supply even, I shall give thanks to you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. Not only would God's enabling grace then produce an unashamed life under the scrutiny of the Word of God, verse 6, but notice now. God's help would also produce a life of praise and thanksgiving under the tutelage of the word of God in verse 7. The second fruit of God's grace, sanctifying grace is gratitude, thanksgiving and praise. Look you you can tell a Christian, can't you, by this very attitude. Uh, the verb Here, to give thanks can mean to confess or uh, to praise or extol, depending on the context. Uh, the, The context here, I believe, is praise and thanksgiving since it is given, notice, with or from an upright heart. Confession flows from a heart laden with guilt, but praise and thanksgiving is what proceeds from an upright heart, a sincere heart. This is sincere praise. This is thanksgiving offered from right and straight motives, we could say. The phrase here is an idiom for sincerity and integrity and could even be read out of an honest heart. In other words, this is praise and thanksgiving to God for that clear conscience from a clear conscience. But notice, there's also a specific occasion here for this praise and thanksgiving. Just like there was a specific occasion for the clarity of conscience that God could produce in a Christian when He looks upon the fullness of God's Word, here the specific occasion for giving thanks and praise to Him is notice, when I learn your righteous judgments, or literally in my learning, in the process of my being discipled, being taught, in the process of my learning from your Word, The verb here, to learn, is the standard Old Testament term for discipleship. For the psalmist, this is a never-ending process. We could say, like as Charles Bridges notes, thus the wisest saints are only students in the divine school. Are you learning still? How long have you been in Christ? How long have you read and owned a Bible? Are you still learning? You should be. The righteous judgments here refer to God's perfect and authoritative decisions and evaluations about right and wrong, good and evil. We need to be taught that, don't we? And this is the judgments, it's the sixth and last synonym for the Word of God that we encounter in our stanza. Really, these are simply God's all-wise, unimprovable moral standards that's what we learn from the word of god that's what we're constantly learning aren't you learning that christian don't you re- haven't you had recently that process where by which you've read a scripture and realized oh i didn't i was wrong god was right about this and you learn something new and your life became more conformed to his moral standard. That is what the psalmist describes here as the situation and the circumstance from which, listen, praise and thanksgiving ought to flow from our lips. Do you thank the Lord when you learn from God's Word? What we find out here is that, Christian, we should be studying t- so that we could learn, and we should be learning so that we could praise. That's the order of things here. This is the most appropriate response of a true believer when God's Word is taught to him. Do you rejoice? Do you, does your heart just leap in thanksgiving and praise to God we'll make it very concrete every time you come here and learn something new about the Word of God. If you do, that is fruit. That is the result, listen, of the Spirit's work in your life. It's the fruit of this God's sanctifying grace that He supplies through His Word. Listen, theology, Ought always to end in doxology. Our best thinking should lead us to thanksgiving. Do you praise God? Do you give thanks to Him for His for the learning of His righteous judgments? Is that your heart's response? Again, Charles Bridges writes. When our minds are dark, our lips are sealed, but when he opens our understanding to learn his judgments, he will next open our lips and our mouth shall flow forth his praise. So these are the things the psalmist prays for. This is his request. His request is that God would help him, that God would establish his path for obedience, that he might have a clear conscience before the Word and a heart filled with gratitude when taught the Word. Examine your life, Christian. Is that you? Are you experiencing the sanctifying grace of God through the study of His Word? Is it creating in you a clean and clear conscience, a heart filled with gratitude, That is how, that is the request that we see and notice finally verse 8, the psalmist resolve in his pursuit of obedience. He finishes with this, I shall keep your statutes. Do not forsake me utterly. And I love this expression because it's it's, it's so balanced for us, right? It keeps us from so many errors. Because here we find that the psalmist is not discouraged from his own responsibility and effort and resolve to pursue this sanctification even though he feels his need of God's help. You see, the temptation for us is to say, okay, I get verse 5 and I need God to help me I am utterly insufficient in my own strength, and so I'm just going to sit here. (laughs) But that's not where the psalmist ends, right? Verse 8, he actually, that quickens his resolve. The feeling of his need, it doesn't cancel out his own desire to put forth effort to follow hard after the Lord. As Spurgeon observes, we find here both resolution and dependence. And that's, that's a good word. This final verse is the psalmist's personal resolve to fulfill his responsibility. Followed immediately by a desperate plea for God's help in the task. <laughs> I love that. That's just our existence as Christians, isn't it? You see, this man understood that even though he needed God to produce in him this life of obedience, it wasn't going to happen apart from his own active striving. And here we find the biblical balance. The first verb here, I shall keep, is, it's, it's in the imperfect tense indicating the ongoing commitment to that obedience. It wasn't just one and done. The psalmist says, Man, this is my constant desire and resolve. But then immediately, having made that vow to the Lord, he turns right around and says, notice the final petition, do not forsake me utterly. And here's our first hint in this psalm that this man is writing in a difficult situation, perhaps going through trial, persecution. This is this, this is the same cry for help as if you're taking notes in Psalm 27, verse 9, Psalm 38, verse 21, Psalm 71, verse 18. Do not forsake me, O Lord. And the sense of this is, I think, captured by... <coughs> One writer, when he said, never leave me to my own strength nor to my own heart. That's the idea. See, again, alongside his resolve in this last verse is a sense of his own inadequacy and weakness that never left him. But this time, it's perhaps accentuated by the danger, distress and the difficulty that he was experiencing in his circumstances. Ever feel that way? It's hard to obey, isn't it? It's hard enough to obey when we know, man, we have this thing called the flesh. And then enter outward trials, right? That was this man's situation. And so I love I love what Spurgeon ends here by saying about the tension in this verse, but the beauty of it, this expression, he says, if we long to keep his statutes, listen, here's the promise, Christian, he will keep us. Yea, his grace will keep us keeping his law. So this we see, the joy of the life of obedience to God's word and the pursuit of that life of obedience to God's word. Obedience and conformity and submission to the Word of God is the blessed life. So, Christian, plead with God to help you pursue it. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for just the honesty, the forthrightness, the freedom with which this psalmist expresses all these great truths, and even this first study we've experienced what we heard earlier and what was what has been the experience of those throughout church history that this psalm is indeed simple enough for a child to grasp and yet difficult and deep enough to challenge the most mature Christian Father, we pray you would use it in our lives we we ask with the psalmist our heart and our lips cry out with him we agree Lord we we need your help establish our path make our feet firm in the way of obedience Lord that we might have a clear and clean conscience that we might not be ashamed before all that you command us to do Lord that we may rejoice and give thanks to you as we learn of your statutes. Father, do all this work in us, in our hearts, by your grace, and never let us slow down, never let us soften, never let us keep or stop striving, for you have called us, you have commanded us, and you yourself have given us your word to be obeyed. Lord, we long to obey it. Help us to do so for your glory. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.